Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, we talk to Dr. Tom McCall. Tom McCall teaches at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He is one of the forebears or founding fathers, perhaps, of the analytical theology movement. So we talk about that today. We also talk about his new book on sin. We talk about a book that he wrote several years ago called Forsaken on Jesus's cry of dereliction at the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Since it's Easter week, we thought that would be really helpful to think through as we think about the crucifixion on Good Friday and as we think about the resurrection on Sunday. Church Grammar is presented by B&H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to find out about all their latest offerings and new books. We're also brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. You can go to csbible.com to learn about that English translation, to see their study Bibles, Bibles for women and kids, and all kinds of resources to help you dig into God's Word. And now, my conversation with Tom McCall. But first, as always, no big deal. Dr. Tom McCall on the line. Tom, thanks so much for taking some time to be on the podcast today. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to uh, chat. I do have to, uh, we have to get something out of the way early though. You're wearing a Steelers uh, hoodie and I'm a Cowboys fan. And so there's a, um, there's a long history here. So we're going to have to get this worked out now so that we can have a productive conversation the rest of the way. So uh, unfortunately I have literally no bragging rights anymore whatsoever as a Cowboys fan. So yeah, well, I'm just thinking, um, you know, one of those two teams has six and, you know, one doesn't. So, you know, we can, we can talk about that all you want. So. <laughs> well, see, that's the thing I grew, I like my earliest memories are early nineties Cowboys. Cause I was born in 85. So it's about time I started being able to uh, okay. you know, see that. And so my earliest memories are the Cowboys got five and the Steelers only had four and it was just this great Cowboys had the most Super Bowls, And now the Patriots and the Steelers have passed yeah, since then. Yeah. And, the, um, now the Steelers and that other team. Yeah, the other uh, team. We don't have to talk about yeah. them. We can equally, we can mutually not like them. So hey, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a Jerry Jones kind of guy, and I've, I'm not like, I didn't like Jimmy Johnson. I just didn't like that whole, that whole gang very much. And then when they beat the Steelers, um, um, you know, back in the Bill Cowher era, mm-hmm. you know, so I don't, I didn't. But they're, it's getting hard for me not to like the Cowboys, to be honest with you now, because they've got so many Boise State players on the team. Oh, that's true. And, uh, I mean, Leighton Van Der Esch, who doesn't love Leighton Van Der Esch? I mean, yeah. that dude's yeah, awesome. The, the, what's his, the Wolf Hunter? The wolf, wolf Hunter. Yeah, the yeah. Wolf Hunter, yeah. yeah. Well, hopefully so, he comes back from his neck injury and is going to be fine. He got a little, he got messed up pretty good last year, but... Yeah, I, that guy's great, man. Yeah. Um, Riggins, Riggins, Idaho has been one of my favorite places in the world for a long time. It's a little tiny town, bottom of a canyon, um, hunting, fishing, skiing, whitewater rafting galore. And for him to come out of there, I mean, I mean, seriously, um, it is in the middle of, uh, you know, it's the middle of everything. Yeah. If you like outdoors, it's in the middle of nowhere. Um, <laughs> right. from the perspective. So, no, seriously, for a wolf uh, hunter, it's a cool it's story. What's that? <laughs> so for a wolf hunter, it's great. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Now, yeah, we've got Kellen Moore, offensive coordinator. I mean, he's, you know, he's the, the statue. Oh, I love that guy. Yeah. I mean, yep. you know, yeah. So I'm, I'm right about that, right? He was in the, sta- he was the statue. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, of course. yeah. Yeah. 50 and uh, 50 win quarterback at Boise yeah. State. Yeah. Yeah. He's the best. He, he was, uh, yeah, he's, he's, and he's did a great job last year. So, yeah. 
Um, I can't. I just can't find anything with the Steelers though that I'm as happy about yet. So okay. I'm a Longhorns fan. So maybe if you guys pick up a couple more Longhorns, maybe I can no, get there. No. I do respect. How do you like Troy Polamalu though? Like yeah, everybody loves him. Yeah. I was gonna say you are a believer, right? I mean yeah. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> You're a good guy, I thought. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we uh, we're falling into some other conversations now. Maybe maybe your book on sin. Maybe I need to read that. <laughs> I'll help explain your distaste for. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. So let's talk a little bit. Uh, I had a, a just a couple of your books that I've read and have been really helped by, and and many of my friends as well have. So um, I told you beforehand, this is just a, a selfish. Uh, all the books of yours that I've read, I want to talk about type things. So uh, perks of having the microphone, right? Um, so. You know, one of the things I read actually pretty recently was your invitation to analytic Christian theology. And we'd had a a conversation about this a little while back about just sort of what is analytic theology and what's kind of some of the distinctives that you see uh, that contribute to um, an evangelical or even classical, uh, you know, Trinitarian theology or or, uh, theological method. So maybe just talk through a little bit, kind of introducing, okay, people may have heard of analytic theology, they may have heard of you or Oliver Crisp or some of the others that are working in this area. Uh, what is distinctive about it? What What are you bringing to the table, and, and why do you um, prefer or like, you know, the analytic theology? Yeah. So that's thanks for that. It's a great question. So, so back in oh four oh five, I think it was, um, I was at a conference and I uh, heard I saw a guy I didn't know um, ask what I thought was a great question. So. I found him afterwards. I want to follow up with him on his question. And he looked at me and he saw my name tag and he goes, Oh, um, I've actually been meaning to get in touch with you. I was like, what? Uh, he goes, yeah, Oliver Crisp and I are thinking about putting together a group and maybe a book, um, of people who are in theology, who have some, um, interest in, or think there's some good utility to engagement with analytic philosophy of religion and metaphysics. And, um, philosophers who are not just um, interested in religion generally, but who are interested in genuinely Christian theology. And he's like, we want kind of a mix of junior and senior. And I said, well, I'm on the, I'm, I'll help you with the junior side of that. Um, yeah, at that if it gets point, more junior might be uh, might be in trouble, right? <laughs> yeah. So I said, I can I can help you with that part. Anyway, they're like, yeah, we don't really know what to call this thing yet. And turned out it became called analytic theology. Um, so what got me interested in that, honestly, was um, initially was my interest in um, the way that the broad Christian tradition has done theology. And, you know, I'm looking in 20th century, early 21st century theology and looking at theologians and like, who does theology like, say, you know, kind of like at least Anselm or Aquinas um, or Duns Scotus or Francis Turin? or Johann Gerhard or any of the other sort of major Protestant scholastics. And I'm like, you don't see them operating very much this way. Well, in some ways, certainly not. But in some ways, the closest um, to those folk methodologically are some of the people who are engaged with analytic uh, philosophy these days. Now, again, not in every way, but in some ways. So that's really where my interest came from. So what I, what I mean by it, a lot of people mean different things by it, and I think that's fine as long as we're reasonably clear about what we mean. But in in this case, what I mean by it is just um, good theology done with a a commitment to clarity of expression and rigor of argument. And so clarity of expression, we just say as much as we can, as clearly as we can, 
and say what we don't mean and say what we do mean as, as best we can. And rigor of argument, of course, appropriate to the, the particular sort of um, project in mind. And so not everything should be or should attempt to be the same uh, sort of level of rigor. Um, certain things need to be as rigorous as possible and other things given certain sort of pedagogical or catechetical um, projects shouldn't be. But they still should, should still be clear and should still show a, a sort of line of argument. Now, one could sometimes, you know, I've talked about distinguishing between sort of hard and soft or broad and narrow analytic theology to where in one sense, it's just any kind of theology that's committed to declarative expression or rigor of argument. There's another way of, more technical way of understanding this, and this is the kind of theology that seeks finds value in uh, close conversations, the res- drawing upon the resources of contemporary analytic epistemology or metaphysics or moral theory or whatever, right? Um, and so those are those tend to be the more technical and sometimes challenging or you know, less less attractive generally sorts of discussions. But I, in my view, analytic theology just sort of covers all of that. Uh, and there's the more precise or technical sense of it, um, and that's got an appropriate place. But in a broader sense, I mean, this is should be the kind of theology that helps fund good preaching, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, clarity of expression and rigor of argument. Yeah, so... Um we're thinking through, you know, some of the work that you have done. You had um, Against God and Nature that came out recently on the Doctrine of Sin. Um, super helpful. I taught on, or I'm teaching on the Doctrine of Sin this semester, now uh, now via video, instead of in person <laughs> with all this uh, COVID stuff going on. But it's been a really helpful resource to me uh, thinking through some of that. So, um, so we'll move into kind of talking about that book a little bit, but sort of setting it up. You know, when you're looking at the Doctrine of Sin, for example, as an analytic theologian, what are some of the tools or... Um, methodology that you're bringing to the table that you feel like this is helpful in describing or talking about hamartiology that maybe you didn't see in other you know evangelical works that are similar. Yeah, thanks for that. And, and by the way, just thanks for the kind words about the book. I'm glad that it's being found helpful by some folk. Um, so it's not, I didn't set the book up to be sort of an analytic theology project per se. Sure. I just look at it as theology. So the first, you know, 100 pages are just sort of, sort of, um, direct and, and as direct as I could be sort of summary of what I take to be the broad biblical theme. So the first couple of uh, chapters, the first hundred pages or so, is just sort of straight up biblical theology. Um, and then when I turn my attention to uh, precise issues, right, more, more focused uh, attention to particular issues in the doctrine of sin, on some of those, actually, the analytic tools turn out to be pretty helpful. Uh, so one of those, for instance, is the doctrine of original sin. You know, what do we what what do we make of the doctrine of original sin? I mean, how is it that I'm related, you're related to what our most remote ancestors did in the garden, right? Um, how does that impact us, and what what does that have to do with us today? And uh, I think there are really some interesting insights and good resources to be drawn from the Christian tradition. But also the tools of con- and some of the work even done in contemporary analytic circles has actually been pretty helpful with this. Uh, and I say I say contemporary. It is contemporary. Of course, um, the, most of the contemporary work I, uh, with which I engage draws from Augustine and Edwards and, uh, and a host of figures from the tradition, too. So it's not done sort of de novo or just made up. Uh, but it's in a sense, it's a kind of retrieval or recovery 
of a lot of uh, tools and insights that were that were there before. Another thing on um, even even go to the title, right? You can't always tell a book by its cover, but in this case, you kind of can. Um, when you say it's against God, and when when I say it's sin is against God in nature, well, what does that mean? Because um, to one, it's one thing to say sin is um, against nature. Well, what in the world? Like, well, my point is that it's against nature as intended to be, um, and that sin is not the deepest truth about humans. Um, it's not the deepest truth at all. And here, 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 the analytic tools again become helpful. And I'll say again here, as as you would have read, Brandon, um, the analytic tools as as in used by the Christian tradition. So this is what the Lutherans did um, in their debates over the question of is sin substantial? Is it a, is it a substance? Well, they actually debate this, and to do that, they've got to use metaphysics, and they come down very decisively and say no. Strictly strictly understood, it's an accident, not a substance, and they give theological and indeed distinctly Christological arguments for that. Well, to understand those requires engagement with metaphysics. Now, I also want to point out that one of the things I think is great about what Formula of Concord does is it says really explicitly, this little pastoral coda at the end, don't use these terms from the pulpit, like don't preach this stuff. Um, but it says, have a good enough grasp of these things that when you do preach, you don't say the wrong things. So that when you do preach, you don't go the wrong way or lead people astray. So that when you do preach, you're saying the right things and avoiding the wrong things, even though you're not saying these these things in this particular way, which I think is really good advice generally. Yeah, so expand on that against God and nature a little bit. So that is a, I think a unique, um, a unique way that you've you framed it. Um, so, so how is it, against God and against nature, because it seems like to me, and you can tell me if I'm uh, reading it wrong, but there is sort of in, in maybe some reform circles or wherever this kind of idea of you being a fallen, broken, sinful person is what it is to be human in some, in some way. It almost make, it's almost like beating you down before it builds you back up. And you tend to take a little bit of a different approach to that. So, so how do you talk through those two against God, against yeah. God? What I do, I don't think what I do is novel. Um, I think what I do goes back actually to some of the earliest Christian theologians who wrestle with this. Um, in fact, the the, the very phrases um, um, uh, against God, against nature, uh, and against reason, those are sort of part and parcel of medieval. Yep. Um, and any, I think, as well, even patristic re- uh, reflections on the doctrine of sin. So I don't think what I'm doing is, uh, is novel as much as it is a kind of retrieval of older ideas. So here's where I'm with the Reformed tradition on this, is to say that sin is deep, so deeply ingrained within us and so total, right? Talking about total depravity. It's so totally um, th- throughout our being and um, that it encompasses and impacts every aspect of us. So it's my reason, it's my will, um, it has, it impacts me, my affections. I'm twisted and bent in all parts of me, and um, I'm twisted and bent and broken to such a degree that I cannot fix myself, right? So I'm, I'm completely with uh, the Reformed tradition on that, although of course, so are the Lutherans, and so, you know, so are a lot of other folk. Um, so I'm totally with them on that. Where I, um, where I might sound like I'm disagreeing with some of them is when I say it's also distinctly against nature because even though all of those things are true of us, 
They're not the ultimate truth about us. It's not what we were made to be. It's not the way we were made for. And, and here again, to go back to historic Protestant teaching on this, I mean, the Lutherans denied that sin is a substance on for several reasons. And one of these reasons has to do with doctrine of creation. Because a substance is a created is a created thing. And if it's a created thing, who made it? Well, it's either um, you could some would say the devil created it, but the Lutherans push back and say that gives the devil way too much credit, way too much power. And also they'll say misunderstands, fundamentally misunderstands what the devil does. The devil's a destroyer, not a creator. Mm-hmm. So it can't be that. Well, God's the creator of everything, right? God's the creator of everything that's not God. At least the creator of all substances, right? So did God create evil? Well, then they're saying, and they're, they're explicit and forceful about this. To say that is not just to make a mistake. It's to actually to commit blasphemy. Mm-hmm. Um, God is good. God is holy good. God is simple. God is good in God's simplicity. And to say that God creates evil or sin is actually to commit blasphemy. And to say something that implies that comes way too close to blasphemy. Don't mess with, Don't go there. So anyway, the, the classic um, Protestants, the Lutherans say these things, and the Reformed, like if you read like Turretin, he's, a, he's observing the Lutheran debates, and he says, yep, they got it right over here. Um, so they make arguments from creation, but they also make arguments that are Christological. Mm-hmm. And this is the point. Christ is uh, not only reveals to us who God is, but Christ reveals to us what it means to be truly human. This is like a fundamental, fundamental point uh, in those debates. Christ reveals to us what it means to be fully human. And we know explicitly from Scripture that even though he was tempted in all points as we are, yet he was without sin. So for someone to say that to be a sinner or to be human just is to be a sinner, you've run into deep, deep problems with respect to the doctrine of creation and deep, deep, really serious problems with respect to Christology. And again, um, those are things I've honestly, I wish I you know, was smart enough to think all that up. I'm just retrieving that from, yeah. from uh, the Protestant traditions and, and behind the Protestants too. Yeah, I was going to say, even as you were talking, you know, it reminds me of, of Athanasius in, on in the Incarnation. He talks about you know, being and non-being, rational and irrational, kind of how sin yep. uh, does not create a new type of substance or being, but, but actually destroys it. As you said, Satan is the destroyer. Jesus is not just the second Adam, he's the true Adam, right? There's just kind of, yeah. Yeah, and so even though, on the one hand, we do affirm that we as humans are corrupt all the way through and in an utterly debilitating way so that we cannot fix ourselves, we cannot save ourselves, that those are not the ultimate truths about us. And that the ultimate truths about us are that we are creatures of God, made by God as good and called good by God, and then redeemed by the Christ who is uh, simply and fully good, redeemed uh, for that same goodness, and to that, and that that is for the those who are joined in union with Christ. That's our that's our new identity. That's our destiny. Uh, so that's a fundamentally different way of thinking about uh, about sin. It's not something that sort of um, a substance that needs to get ripped out of me. You know, like I have two natures or something. Nope. Christ has two natures. The rest of us don't. Uh, I have a human nature that's been corrupted by sin. You have a human nature that's been corrupted by sin. And that human nature is being redeemed um, by Christ and cleansed by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and that, I mean, and even just as you were, as you were going down the road there, I mean, it becomes pastoral really quick, right? When you're talking about 
um, how you're explaining to people their relationship to God and what sin does to them and why he redeems them and, and why union with Christ is so important. Absolutely. So sin is not the ultimate truth about you or me or anyone, no matter how broken and how sinful. It, it, it isn't. It's the, there's a, there are deeper truths about creation and, uh, and deeper truths about grace and deeper truths about the grace that restores creation and, and even promises take us beyond it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, these are, these are, I think, become really fundamentally and importantly pastoral. Okay, so you talk through uh, in the book too, just the um, you know various views of metaphysics and morals when it comes to original sin, the various views of original sin and the relationship uh, between corruption and guilt, and all the, you know all the all the major uh, issues and, and texts. Um, where do you ultimately kind of come down on some of those major debates of like you know, where you where you fit in the most, how you how you work through corruption, guilt, original sin, those kind of things? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, it's not an easy question, but it's a, it's a good question. You wrote the book on it. I mean, yeah, I can answer, who can, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so what I do in that, in that discussion, uh, just to set it up a little, bit more, a little bit more thoroughly, is I don't jump straight to discussion of metaphysics and, and moral theory. Right. What I do is I raise the issues and ask some of the important questions that are before us and then survey some of the major views that have been on offer. Following that, then I return to a closer look, a more detailed look at Romans 5, 12 through 21. And there I, I asked, you know, what is being taught here? Sort of what is being, open, you know, um, explicitly affirmed? What's implied by what's affirmed? What's ruled out by what's being taught there? And then where are there areas where the text gives us room for different things. So it certainly rules out certain views as a, on my reading. Uh, it certainly pushes us to make uh, some core affirmations. But as it turns out, and this was actually a bit of a surprise to me as I worked through the book, uh, as it turns out, um, I, you know, I, as I see it, the text actually allows for more than one way of accounting for the main affirmations that are made there. So there's there's room, in other words, there's room for some legitimate disagreement mm-hmm. that I think we should admit is somewhat speculative. All right, so that's to set it up a little yeah, bit. Now sure. back to your question, uh, where do I come down on it? Well, uh, before I started this, um, my own view at that point was that we are um, both corrupted by original sin and that we are also guilty for original sin. Um, after uh, several years of wrestling with this and um, after a closer study, for, for instance, especially Romans 5, uh, I no longer I no longer am committed to that view. Um, I am committed, committed to the view that we are corrupted by sin, and as I said earlier, all the way through us. So it's my will, my affections, every part of me, right? Uh, I, can, I can and do affirm, quote-unquote, total depravity in that sense. And, and also, of course, I would affirm it to the extent that we are not able to save ourselves or even to begin the process of saving ourselves. So I would affirm all those things. And I think that all of that is taught in Scripture. What I don't think is explicit in Scripture is any sort of affirmation of, say, a Federalist account, according to which we are guilty for what Adam did because he represents us legally. Um, I actually don't think that's demanded by... Romans 5, or actually by any other text. Now, 
there could be a, maybe a broader theological case made for federalism if you have if you can construct a federalist superstructure uh, from other passages. I'm not commit, convinced of that either. So, um, I, so I, I'm not committed to a federalist view. In fact, um, I don't think that Scripture demands that at all. So, uh, realist views. I think are interesting. Um, metaphysically, they become very, very interesting really quickly. Uh, I also don't think that they're quite that promising. Now, I do think that there is a way of holding to uh, guilt for original sin that runs along uh, what sometimes are called immediate views uh, held by Anselm, arguably John Calvin, and, and lots of other folk. Anyway, I do think that if you can also adopt a Molinist view of uh, Molinist metaphysics, that there's a way of making that work. Now, Molinism is controversial, and um, I don't try to sort all that out in this book either. But I think for the Molinists, there's a way to do it if you're convinced that that's what Scripture teaches. Um, as a, you know, at the end of the day, I just wasn't convinced that Scripture demands that. So I do think that we're corrupt in all parts, and I think that we are in fact guilty, right? But what we're guilty for, um, and this is where at least the the onus, right, the heavy biblical pressure comes down, is that we're guilty for what we do, and of course what we fail to do, and all those things. The, the biblical impetus for guilt seems to me, throughout the canon, to fall heavily on the sinner, the sinner in question, not the first sinner, not Adam, uh, again and again. The prophets rail against the people who sin for their sins. The prophets don't ever rail, so far as I can see, ever rail against people for the sins of Adam. They they hold them accountable and call them to account for the sins they are committing, either sins of omission or sins of commission or, or however you want to break that up. So again, again and again, we see this. Uh, we see it in the teachings of Jesus, Matthew 25, 31 and 46. When, will, when did we see you? In prison, right? When did we see you in these ways? When you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. Again, this is not blaming, uh, this is not faulting us for what Adam did or, or pronouncing guilt that way. It's, it's, a, it's guilt for what we did and didn't do. Paul summarily held to the judgment seat for sin, for um, deeds done in the body, right, in the flesh. Um, so again and again, we just see that the heavy biblical emphasis is on what the sinners are doing that deserves, uh, that incurs guilt and deserves punishment. Uh, so that's at least the heavy biblical emphasis. And there is also, you know, biblical witness that people are not held legally liable or guilty for the sins of their parents, no more than their parents may be held liable for the sins of the children. So I'm committed. You ask my own commitments. This is a long way of answering your question. Sorry. That's a good one. Um, this is what my own theologians do, right? You got to you paint, paint the tapestry, do the yeah, clarifying yeah, language. Yeah. Yeah. It's helpful. Yeah. So, yeah, what I, what I am committed to theologically is the view that we are corrupted by original sin in all parts of us. That further, that we are so corrupted that we cannot save ourselves or even begin the process. Further, that we are guilty for what we do. Um, I'm not committed to the view that we are guilty for what Adam did or even for original sin in immediate sense. I do think that if one is uh, committed to that, there is a way to account for it, um, at least if you can be a Molinist. And, you know, maybe there's a way for some versions of realism to get there, but it gets tough. So anyway, that's my that's where I'm at on that. Yeah, so, um, you know, some of what you're saying, it, it does, um, you know, if you're thinking about how, how does this apply or you think through it, you know, there is a way 
that people will say, well, you know, I'm just a sinner. That's who I am. I was born this way. What do you expect? You know, because of Adam, yep. you know, which is, which is obviously very unhelpful in ways you're trying to work around that. Um, how do you, how do you um, talk through the relationship then between um, Adam and Christ, right? Because federalism kind of has this, you know, Adam is sort of the head uh, by, you know, basically sinning and passing it to us. Jesus is the head by saving us as the second Adam. So how do you work through some of that second Adam uh, issues with Christ um, and union with Christ and those things? Yeah, well, yeah, clearly, that's a great question. And clearly there are, um, there are, I'm not denying any sort of federal elements, right? I'm, I'm not denying that, that Adam is representative of us and in some sense for us, my resistance to the full-blown federalist theory comes at a couple of other levels um, in another conversation, um, the so-called covenant of redemption, inter-Trinitarian, pre-temporal stuff. But that's that's beside this issue. Um, what I, my concern is with federalism here is precisely with the guilt of sin, right? So, uh, and I just don't see that in, and I don't see that explicitly in Romans 5, but I don't see that in the parallel with Christ. The, the parallels with Christ in Romans 5 um, are there, but it's really important not to miss the the really significant disjunct or disanalogy. And again and again, we're told um, in forceful ways that the point here, I think, is that the emphasis on Christ actually not on Adam. And it's much more in Christ than it was in Adam. So where great where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Um, I, I take to be that that to be an important part of this. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's so the uh, the corruption because of Adam is passed to us. That's right. The guilt is on our own, our own volitional sinning. That's, that's, that's the way I take it. Now, again, I'm not, I'm actually not hostile to or opposed to uh, these other views. I just don't think that they're demanded by scripture. Uh, and I don't think that they actually work very well when it comes to holding moral responsibility. There are ways to perhaps hold the moral responsibility if one can be a Molinist, as I said earlier. Um, you know, there, there are ways to do it. Uh, maybe maybe a version of realism. But I, I, And I would go that way if I thought that Scripture were, were pushing me to do that. But I don't think that Scripture leads me to a place that, that, put, that forces me to affirm original guilt. Uh, so, given the other problems with it, I'm reticent to do so. Yeah, I don't actually teach it. I guess you could say in this case, I'm a bit like uh, you know Bart on a different issue. Um, I don't, I don't teach it, but I don't not teach it either. In other words, <laughs> right. I'm not going, I'm not going to war against that yeah. view. Like, um, okay, so let's let's shift a little bit here. Although it, it's all kind of related, um, you know, we're around Easter time. Uh, you wrote this book called Forsaken, uh, 2012. I believe that's, that's right. Came yeah. out and. Um, it's on the Trinity and the cross, you know, obviously you're sort of anchoring it to this idea of Christ being forsaken by the Father and the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, this book, uh, I would say, you know, I've, I've read uh, several of your books, like I said, this one has probably impacted me the most in the sense of after I read it, I was like, how can I, I can never unsee this again, and I can never <laughs> think this way ever again. And then it's gotten to the point where... Um, I was joking. I, I teach uh, Theo one here. Um, I talk in my uh, Trinity section about this idea of forsakenness and, and what you know the broken Trinity and, and sort of what what are the implications if you want to say this right. And uh, so I did you know did kind of a little uh, half lecture on it. And that Sunday, 
uh, I was uh, at a church where a pastor had said, you know, from the cross or from the from the stage, you know, uh, Jesus was even forsaken and abandoned by his own father. And there was a student who was in my class uh, that day who turned and looked at me and smirked. And I was like, oh no, now I'm causing discord in the local church. And you know, but uh, but it was one of those things where you know they were saying the same thing. It was sort of like once you've explained it to me this way, I can't that that this is not how what this means and and the biblical and theological implications. I can't unsee it. Um, so that's a, that's a long intro to say, um, could you talk through um, just, you know, essentially what are the major issues with saying this idea that Jesus was abandoned by the Father on the cross or he turned his face away, uh, those kind of things, and just, just set up that argument a little bit? Yeah, so I, I got into, into this because, uh, of course, I want to do everything I can to uh, proclaim the gospel as clearly as, as possible and uh, let the power of the gospel um, sort of be unleashed. I don't make it powerful. It's, it is powerful. Um, but I do want it to be, I don't want it to be uh, besmirched by poor understandings or, or occluded so our vision of it is, gets cloudier and we're, we're not able to see it as, as well. So I want to, you know, I want to do as, as well as we can. Anyway, so I was just struck. I, I was uh, hearing um, some really prominent and gifted and, and no doubt godly preachers preaching from this cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I couldn't help but but see that in comparison to, and in some cases pretty stark contrast to, the way it was had been read in sort of patristic, major patristic and major medieval theologians. And then I got to thinking about, well, so I knew that I knew some of that worked better. And I thought, wonder what the major Protestant you know, what the Protestant scholastics were thinking about this. And so I began to read them, and you know what? Turns out they're not saying what all the contemporary people are saying either. And in fact, some of them are denying what the contemporary people are saying. So I started looking at this, and I started seeing that there's this big gap between a lot of the older views of this, including the older Reformed and Lutheran views, and a lot of contemporary, you know, contemporary evangelical stuff. And so I was just wanting to to search that out more fully, and this book, little book, came out of that. Now, what I what I try to do in the book is look at the the contemporary scene, and with respect to say sort of both the theological left and right, if we can use those terms. And it turns out that uh, there's a whole house and lineage of Jurgen Moltmann and his and his um, fellow theologians who take this to be nothing less than a sort of ontological brokenness, utter forsakenness, the father against the son, sort of a war within the Godhead, uh, utter break. They're saying these things, but at the same time, some you know wonderful uh, evangelical biblical scholars are saying these things, and some really powerful evangelical preachers are saying these things. So you get it sort of on both left and right, and in my view, both go pretty deeply against a lot what a lot of the tradition held. So then what I decided to do was just uh, approach this thing theologically. So the little book, you know, the, the phrase theological interpretation of scripture is kind of a big thing. I never used that in this book. That's really what I'm doing. I'm really trying to help us and help us understand uh, the Christ cry of dereliction as portrayed by both Matthew and Mark and to do so theologically. So that's taking account of the Christian tradition. That's interpreting the passage canonically. Obviously, it's a reference to Psalm 22.1. What's going on with that? How much of that should we understand? How should that shape things? So I try to look at the passage canonically. 
and also theologically, like what it means for the doctrine of the Trinity and what the doctrine of the Trinity means for how we're to understand this passage. So that that's what I do. Yeah, I I understand. I fully understand. I do not. I don't tie up all loose ends here. Um, I try to say we shouldn't say these things in our preaching and teaching. And on the other hand, we should affirm these other things. But there are there are differences of opinion even among those who hold the things we should that I think we should hold. Yeah. And they're not there's there's more than one way of doing this. That and I think that those issues, um, the further issues, need further. They need further exploration, I think, and I'm, I'm excited to see people start to pick that up and run with that and do that. Yeah, so um, what are the, you know, some just drill down kind of the basic, here's, here's the base level things we need to affirm or not affirm uh, canonically and theologically. So what are, the, what are the canonical implications of the Psalms and how the Psalm is being used and what the context of the Psalm is, and then some of the Trinitarian, problematic Trinitarian implications particularly. Yeah. So as as we're saying, one of the one of the main sort of lines that one sometimes hears is the Trinity is broken or ruptured, or there's um, you know the Father's against the Son, or the, even the Father hates the Son. I've heard that um, there's a sort of holy hatred of the Father against the Son. The Son became odious or abhorrent to the Father. One one recent evangelical book says that the how's it the phrase goes the Father turned away from the son and the son heard the la- a laugh of derision from the father. I mean, that stuff, I, how, where is that even supposed to be coming from? Like, so, so what I do, I, you know, I look at the text and so neither Matthew nor Mark explain it. They give it to us. They state it in Aramaic. They translate it for us. They don't tell us fully what it means. So what I try to do is look um, at it canonically and that's both sort of forwards and backwards um, it's obviously a, a reference to Psalm 22.1. Some people think that an entire psalm was intended by Jesus. Other people think, no, he just quoted the first verse because that's just what he meant us to get. He didn't want us to take the, the full passage. And what I try to say in this book is that um, maybe it's hard to ascertain exactly what Jesus himself intended at the moment. But it's not that hard to understand this in the context of Mark and Matthew. Mm-hmm. And the way they set it up makes it, to my mind, quite clear that they do intend us to read this in the context of Psalm 22 as a whole. I mean, they refer to gambling for his clothes. Yeah. Is that Psalm 22 or is that is that the synoptic accounts? That's both. People mocking him. Is it Psalm 22 or is it Matthew and Mark? Well, it's all of it. Uh, and like over and over again. So they are drawing all of these pointers back to the passage as a whole. And what the passage as a whole actually says is, he has not turned his face away, but has listened to my cry for help. Um, So I I do it forward and backward as it were. So also canonically, even the other gospel accounts of what's going on. Now you ask also about the Trinity. What I do there, I understand the book is a bit sketchy. Uh, sketchy in the sense of being thin, not sketchy in the sense of being weird or wrong. It's not weird or wrong. Good, good clarification. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it is, it is, it's sketchy in the sense of not being very thorough. I understand that. But what I try to say is, is that um, in the contemporary theological scene, there are quote-unquote social Trinitarians and there are quote-unquote Latin or classical um, Trinitarians. And what I try to say is wherever you're at on that spectrum – this broken Trinity view just won't work because it can't work. And 
as Christians, we are Trinitarians all the way down. This is the deepest things we say about God um, is that God is triune. And to so to say, it's not that is it is it's not that God is God and then is triune. It's that God's own being is triune. So to say that God is no longer Trinity is the same thing as saying for a Christian that God doesn't exist. To say things that imply that the Trinity is broken is for a Christian to say things that imply that God doesn't exist, which if again, if you're a Christian, that's not just false, it's necessarily false, it's always false, it can't be anything else than false. So any any reading of the crime dereliction that gets us there is the wrong reading. Like you said, there are some basic things we can disagree about some of the other stuff, but like nobody should be able to, to disagree with that. But it's, it's, it's that's right. It's yeah. the it's the you know I think a lot of it is genuinely just the people not thinking through the implications. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the pushback that I've heard um, before is okay. Well, on the same token, Christ is is cursed on the cross. He is treated as you know some people will say he is treated as sin on our behalf or whatever it is. God can't dwell with sin. God has to turn his face away. Uh, because he can't dwell with sin, or he can't be uh, looking in approval, or you know, different versions of that. So, how do you how do you kind of work through that idea of he is God the Son incarnate, he is God in the flesh? So there is the the triune nature, the, the nature of God that is there. He also has the human nature in which he actually dies. How do you work through some of those kind of implications there? Well, he uh, I just want to be clear. He clearly is forsaken in the sense that he dies. Right. The Father forsakes him to this death on this cross at the hands of these sinful people. He could have rescued him. He could have saved him. He could have done a mighty act of deliverance, and he didn't. So clearly he's forsaken that way, right? So there's there we've got two poles. Like we need to avoid things on either end. On one end, avoid anything that either affirms or implies that the Trinity is broken. On the other hand, you've got to deny You've got to reject any view that this didn't really happen. Mm-hmm. He did. I mean, he was he died. Um, now between those, so reject those ends. Now between those two, there are different ways of understanding the death of Christ, and these are going to hinge on different views of atonement that are going to become. So I think what I think what you're referring to is Galatians three thirteen and Second Corinthians five twenty one. Mm-hmm. Um, most likely, is that right? Yeah, uh, yeah Galatians cur- three cursed for uh, us, and you know, yeah, a curse right, for yep. us, that idea. Yeah. three eleven, yeah. Um, so Galatians three um, talks about this, and Second Corinthians five talks about this. And here again, um, if one looks at closely at the tra- traditional ways of reading this, um, yeah, that you know, one can read those passages at least uh, sort of at first glance as he became sin. You know, First Corinthians, uh, sorry, Second Corinthians five twenty one, he became sin. A lot of folk, and this is grammatically entirely possible. It's the way the it's the way the Septuagint translates this a lot. The um, be sin offering. So he became an offering for the sin. Well, there's that doesn't imply God can't see him or can't love him or can't accept him. Um, in fact, it, it fits quite well with the view that he comes um, precisely to make atonement for us uh, as the sin offering. Right? I think it's a it's a I think it's the right reading of the text actually. Um, even though the fact like NIV says he became sin, and then there's a little footnote, you know, or sin offering. Uh, so again, if one looks at these, um, in the Galatians three passage, um, he became a curse, or was accursed, uh, depending on exactly what you do with it. When you look at the Old Testament reference, the Old Testament reference actually says he was cursed by God. Interestingly, Paul doesn't include that bit. 
Now, he may have expected us to fill it in, and that's not, you know, it's not impossible or maybe even implausible. Um, But even so, we would still want to ask, what does that mean? And to be cursed means to die. That's what it means. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, broken fellowship between father and son. It doesn't imply the anti-Trinitarian or broken Trinity sort of view. Um, it, it can mean, you know, he took upon himself. And, and this is what, it, of course, I affirm. He took upon himself. He entered our condition. And our, our condition as sinners is we are under the wrath of God. And he experienced that from his from his birth. I mean, I mean, and and seriously, he came into a broken world, and his family was on the run almost immediately. You know, they 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 were fleeing, fleeing injustice and fleeing violence. Um, Jesus came into a world that is sinful and broken and under the wrath of God, and it's his entire life that encompasses that. It's his entire ministry, and so of course it includes his death. Um, but that doesn't entail much less explicitly say anything about there being a a rupture between the Godhead or anything like that. Yeah, that's helpful. Well, I appreciate uh, appreciate the time. We've already gone 45 minutes, so um, okay. it goes quickly. Um, uh, best wishes uh, to your Steelers as long as they don't win another Super Bowl and go seven for five against the Cowboys. If I can just get six, get six, and we'll be tied, and then we can go back to a uh, back to back to normal fellowship. So yeah, well. Um, I think you're probably in pretty safe ground for the for the immediate future. They don't look that great right now. They're, I think they're rebuilding. So, all right, we'll see. In the meantime, in the meantime, I'm going to keep pulling for the Boise State, the Boise State guys on the on the Cowboys. So. All right, we'll take we'll take that. <laughs> all right, all right. All right. Have so a great time. day.